Ecclesiastes 3, 16 to 22. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? For so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Well, this is our, our task, right, as I prayed uh, for our kids, but also for us, is to glorify God and in his kingdom. This is our task in this book. This has been a tough book uh, to preach and teach. It's one that actually I, I opened and introed this sermon series as one of the hardest books in scripture to preach and teach. Uh, so that was really encouraging as I began to read through that and, and talk through that. But we're in Ecclesiastes 3, and I want to give you a little bit of recap just to bring you all up to speed so we're all going in the same direction because uh, I know there's some visitors here, some family. Uh, I see my bro back there. So if, if you see a guy that is good looking like me, uh, tall, bald, and uh, handsome, then it's probably, it's probably, it's probably my brother. Uh, so uh, so uh, I want to recap a little bit. Uh, so the recap is we're in chapter 3, as you've read, as we heard read, uh, led by Linda, uh, verses 16 through 22 today. Uh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. But the recap is that Solomon, we believe that Solomon wrote this book. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about that yet, but we believe that Solomon wrote this book. He, he, he was gifted supernatural wisdom. He's the son of King David. And he was gifted the supernatural wisdom. We can see in his famous prayer back in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, which we talked about before. And so just to re as a recap, he was, he was asking for wisdom to lead the people of God. And God blessed him with wisdom because he never asked for riches or fame. He blessed him with wisdom and also said, I'm going to actually, because you never asked for those things, I'm going to bless you with those as well. And so God bestowed upon uh, Solomon this supernatural wisdom and, and how this, this book is laid out. It's literally going back into what he has lived out. And it's a, kind of a diary of sorts. And we, we in, were introduced in verse 1 of chapter 1, this preacher. And this preacher, I believe, is, the Sol is Solomon, this preacher king, this coeleth, which means uh, the one who gathers his people together to proclaim the things that he has learned. So this Coeleth is like me up here uh, teaching and proclaiming the things that he has learned. I've done a lot of study on this text. And I'm trying to proclaim now what I've learned. This is, this is like a Coeleth. And so Solomon being the wisest man on earth, and you see that in, in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, or sorry, uh, verse 16 of chapter 1, I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly and I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. And so what 
the book is about is this big theme is that all is vanity. And so he, Solomon uses this great wisdom looking at everything under the sun, everything that we experience, day-to-day life, and he's looking at it with supernatural wisdom and he's going, oh my goodness, all is vanity. There's really no point to this. So he's looked at wisdom, pleasure, drink, building projects, possessions, sex, skills, abilities, madness, and folly, that the outcome of all man's toil was to be handed now to another. All your work, all your toil is going to be handed to another, and we don't know if they're going to be wise or a fool. And now in our text, he is doing his best to see what is after this life. If you have your Bible, like a hardcover Bible, right at the beginning of our text, it actually says uh, dust to dust. So what Solomon is doing here, he's looking at all those things. Now he's come to the, the, the conclusion in, in this section here that we're going to cover is that, okay, so what now after life? And he's looking at this under the sun. So what I've done is I've taken this text that we have before us and I've broken it down into three sections and we're going to walk through it today together and it's our life, our death, and our destiny. Our life, our death, our destiny. Look at section one with me in verse 16 to 18. If you open your Bibles, look in your app or whatever, and it's going to be on the screen there as well. Verse 16 to 18. Let me reread it here as Linda already opened it up. In verse 16, it says, Moreover, so moreover, all the things that I've studied under the sun, moreover, now I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, in the place of justice, wickedness. Even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my inner man, my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. This kind of hyperlinks us back into verses 1 through 15 that Jordan took us through last week. There's a time for all these things. And then in verse 18 it says, And I said in my heart, again, I said in my inner man, looking at the things under the sun, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Whew. It's a big one. It's a big one, right? Like, has anyone here said something, like put some moral standards, uh, some beliefs, like, like this is how I'm going to live and then do the complete opposite? Like, has anyone done this? Never. Yeah, a bunch of liars, right? A bunch of liars. We've all done this, right? Like we've all put these moral standards and beliefs and then we've done the complete opposite. And guess what? We hate the word that that describes. We hate it with a passion. Like I was walking downtown Vancouver one time and I was witnessing to this guy and I just struck up a conversation because literally we were walking down the street together and we were keeping pace to the point we looked at each other and we started laughing. Because like, it's awkward, right? When you're walking beside someone and you're, you, you can't be faster and you can't be slower and you're just staying right beside each other. You can picture that, right? And we're kind of looking at it. Okay, man, I'm just going to start talking to you because I was praying for you. And can I tell you about Jesus? And so I started witnessing to him. And, and we got to the point where I always asked this question. I was like, hey, have you ever gone to church before? Like ever in your life? Have you, have you entered into a church building? And he's like, yeah, actually I have when I was younger. And this is a story of most people. They've walked in whether it's once or twice or maybe when they're young. And he goes, you know what? I, and I said, why did you stop going? Like what, what was it that turned you away from the church? And he looks at me and we kind of stopped. And he looked at me and goes, that place is full of hypocrites. 
And I go, whew, man. And he was not expecting this. And go, you're so right. Full of them. I'm actually a hypocrite. And this is the word we hate, right? Like not in 50 years of my life have I ever had someone come to me and go, hey, I struggle with hypocrisy. Or hi, my name is, I'm a hypocrite. Not once, because we hate the word, but we live in it daily. And so I'm talking to this guy and I go, you know what, I'm a hypocrite. I actually said just the other day, this is what I want you kids to do. And then I did exactly the opposite. And I go, have you ever done that? And he goes, just like you guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've done that. And I looked at him and I go, hey, guess what? You're a hypocrite. We all are. The church is full of them. The world actually is full of them. We all set moral standards and then we do the opposite. See, hypocrisy is defined like this. It says the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. One's own behavior. It's not that you don't live up to the standards of other people. Like we can, we can effort that. Like we, th- this is another sin. Like we try to affirm ourselves through the standards of other people, right? We're trying to live up to expectations of others. And we, we sometimes can meet them pretty regularly. But in their heart, there's bigger standards. See, it's not that you don't live up to the standards of other people. It's that you don't live up to the, your standards that you set for other people. Let me read that again. Let me, let me say this. It's not that you don't live up to the standards that you set for other people. So you have standards for other people and they're always missing the mark, but yet you're not even living that, that, those standards up. See, look at our verse again. Verse 16, we're going to go 16, 17, and 18, and then we'll get to the next point. But look at 16. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the preacher king, the Coeleth, is again bestowing his supernatural wisdom on the gathered people, and this is what he has found. He says, moreover, I saw, I witnessed, and he's telling all those people, I witnessed that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Like justice means, in the original text, I looked it up, it basically means a general respect for one another. So when you have a general respect for another, even there, in your heart, there's a wickedness towards that person. In your righteousness, which means just moral rightness, even there, there's moral wrongness. That's what wickedness means, moral wrong. And so even when you're trying to be the most righteous, best person in the world, there's an evil heart in there of wickedness. Welcome to the shore. Welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is crazy, right? But I might have lost some of you already, right? Because our world preaches this, preaches this, all kinds of self-help books. And it preaches this that, that we are all good, that we are innately good. This is the world's message, that you are a good person. Like if you actually walked on the street and asked this question, I, I challenge you to do this. Ask your friends, ask your family members. And just out of the out of complete no context, just going, hey, do you consider yourself a good person? 95% of people will say yes. Yeah, I am a good person. Because they believe that in their heart. They're talking about themselves. They don't want to admit that they're actually wicked and evil. 
See, let me show you that from the beginning of Scripture all the way through the Bible it tells a different story than the lie of the world. The world says you are innately good, while the Bible tells you you are innately, you are born into sin, you are born into wickedness. So before I get in there, let me tell you a little story of my kids. I, I did not warn them about this. Uh, and so when they're younger, like, so I've got a son and then three daughters. I told my wife, I never make women, like, I don't make girls. I make, I, I make men, all right? And then God laughed and he gave me three daughters. And so this is what happened. So I've, I've got my son and he's about four or five. I can't remember the ages. He's about four or five years old and he's playing Lego on the ground. And my daughter's about two or three and I'm sitting there watching and I'm playing Legos. So I used to be a Coca-Cola Coca driver delivering pop. And, and so I got to stay at home all the time and just play with my kids. It was amazing. And then I'd go to work and then come home and tuck them into bed. It was, it was the best, right? So I get to see, I'm playing with my kids and we're playing Lego. And my son was like the master builder, like that Lego movie. And so he's got his back to me and he's building, like he's in, he's in the, like he's in it. Like he's, he's in the, in, like you cannot even talk to him because he's like so involved in what he's building. And so I'm watching him build, and he's creating this masterpiece. And then I've got my daughter. She's about two or three years old. They're about two years apart. And she's building her thing, just kind of practicing following her brother, right? Anyway, so my son, because his back was, he just reaches back and grabs the exact block he wants and to continue on his building project. And my daughter was sitting behind him, so he had no idea where she was. And she reaches for that same block, and my son got it first. He had no idea that she was reaching for it. Like, he just kind of went like this, and then she was like, now my daughter is one who holds everything in. She is one that just goes, I'm going to bury that deep down inside of me. And then it's just going to explode outward. And so I'm watching this, and I know this of my daughter already, and I'm kind of watching, I'm going, huh, she handled that very well. And she just sat there, and then she, a couple seconds later, she just got up quietly, walked over behind my son, and I'm thinking, oh, she's going to just grab that piece straight from him. No, she leans down and takes a bite out of, her back, out of his back. Like just, I don't, like I'm going to get, I know I can't beat you up, so I'm just going to bite you. See, now when the world says you are innately good and that you're a product of your, you know, your environment, straight up lie from the pit of hell. Right? Straight up lie. We must take responsibilities for our actions. Right? There's a couple weeks, like Jordan and I, between the two of us, we talked about control multiple times. I even had a little nice little diagram, like circle responsibility. This is our responsibility. God gifted to you and you're to do these things and the outer work, the, the thing that you exit out of that circle responsibility, now you're in a place that of, you can no control over. And so we're responsible for certain things and the, and the scriptures give us these things to love one another and to care for one another. See, my daughter is essentially without excuse here. She's without excuse. She's not a product of her environment. Because in, in her two to three years of life, she never saw, she never saw Jody walk over to me, not say anything, and just take a bite out of my back. I know that because in private, that's when she does it, right? She doesn't do it like out publicly. She's only in private. So just kidding, of course. So this was, this was straight from her evil heart. It was innately in her. Let me now show you what the Bible says about this. So in Romans 3, a whole bunch of verses in a row. Romans 3, 10, and 11, it says, none is righteous. So if you're believing the lie that you have a good inside of you, let me try and break that. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Isaiah 64, 6, actually in the context of this, is, is actually really kind of disgusting. The polluted garment that this verse is talking about is a woman's menstrual cycle. Woman's menstrual cycle rag, okay? So we have all become like one who is unclean and all are righteous. Now hear this, our good deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all the seed of Adam. We're born into it. Ephesians 2.3 again emphasizes this. It says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children, children of wrath. James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do, this is a hard one, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, that's sin. You know that the speed limit is 50 and how fast do you go? Oh boy, now we're in trouble. Right? Right, Cam? Right? <laughs> 40, yeah. That's a sin too, according to the law. You go too slow, right? Like, like we, can't, we, we can't get out of this. Like we can't, ju- that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're constantly trying to justify our wrongness. So even in justice, there's wickedness. Even in righteousness, wickedness. This is our text. So Solomon in our text this morning by way of a supernatural wisdom is trying to awaken us all to the fact that there is wickedness in all of us, but also to the fact that, man, we love justice, don't we? We love it. We love justice, especially when it is actually pointed at someone else. Like my brother's here. I loved pointing at my brother. It's like, who, who broke the glass? Rod did it. Right? Constantly pointing at him. It was the best. It's best to have a sibling. I don't know what you'd do if you're your only child. It's like, uh, Dad, you did it. What are you talking about? Right? Like, you, it's pointing at your sibling all the time. It was, it was just innate in us. Man, we were so, we're so evil. We're so evil. See, the problem with this text is that justice is coming. But not by our standards. Remember? Not by our standards, our morals that we try to live up to, but even we go opposite of. It's by the very standards and rightness of God. Look at our next verse in verse 17. It says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will judge. And God's judgment will surpass ours to the point like the text I read earlier in Isaiah 64, 6, that even the best things we can do are like worthless rags compared to God. They're worthless to him. Our justice is worthless. Our righteousness, worthless. It's kind of like the two-year-old trying to help you in the garage, right, guys, when you're, when you're cutting stuff with your skill saw and your two-year-old's coming. Can I help? It's like, yeah, sure, just hold the end of the piece of the wood. I helped daddy build the thing. It's like, no, you didn't. You're actually kind of in the way. Uh, you didn't help. And th- this is our righteous works, trying to help God in what he's doing. But he's the master. He's the control. And he actually invites us in just like a good father would to his child. But our works, 
really don't mean anything comparatively to Christ. So there's a lot to be said here. Just like you and I, I like justice. God likes it far more. And he is justice. That's the difference. He is justice. He is holy. And for God to be unjust or let things slide is not in his character. The problem is we make God out to be unjust because we don't like his judgment, don't we? Don't we? Just hate his judgment on us, especially when we're in the wrong Again, when justice happened in my family towards me, I'm sure like you, I never liked it one bit. Never liked it. But it was right. I needed it. I needed the discipline so I'd recognize my sin, my, my failure. You see, Solomon is setting us up to contemplate this statement of wisdom that in all areas of life is wickedness and there will be a day and hour that God will bring justice. And that's the summary of verse 16 and 17. We are all wicked and God will judge based on our wickedness and we are without excuse because he has given us the ability to know we are evil. And he's again, the quelleth, the preacher king, is trying to awaken us to this. That, hey, even in your righteousness, there's wickedness. Even in your justice, wickedness. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. Interesting. Testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. See, God is testing us that we might be given the chance to see it. He's so gracious. He's so gracious to us. Because he could just judge us. But he's also completely grace and mercy. So he tests us. You see this in our text. God judges us by way of testing. Being image bearers of God, but we do the same, right? Like we, we test people all the time. Like in conversation, we test people. Are, are, they, are they who they say they are? By way of conversation, we test people. We say things like, can I trust this person? And you put them through certain tests. You give instructions to your kids to test them to see if they listen to you. We test by way of expectations, Right? We put expectations on us, oftentimes, most often in our marriages. Right? We have expectations of our spouse. And what happens when they don't meet those expectations? Power control. Right? Now it's judgment. We become the judge. We, be, we become the one who God is. Not giving mercy. No, we, we judge our spouse based on them not meeting our expectations. But when we do the same with everybody. We are the hypocrite. See, we test one another's love by how they treat you, what they do for you, how, and how they meet your expectations. God is testing us. I did some study on this. There's some over 300 references to God testing us in the scripture. Let me read a whole bunch of them in a row here. Exodus 16, 4. And listen for the theme. Listen for the theme. Really important to hear it. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. This is on their journey through the desert. And God goes, I'm going to rain bread on you, and I want you to gather only for the day that is today. Don't gather enough for tomorrow, just for today. So just a little bit of context for that. So rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Exodus 20, 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Deuteronomy 8, 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. 
Deuteronomy 13.3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Judges 2.21-22, I will no longer drive out before them. This is a crazy one. We have a whole book of, called Habakkuk. You can read it. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. I'm not going to drive out those evil nations in order to test Israel by them. I'm going to use evil nations to test my people, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or do what those nations did. Judges 3, 4, they, will, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Luke eight thirteen. this is a parable of Jesus. Jesus told about uh, of different soils, and one of them was a rocky soil, and he's going to spread the good news of Jesus, which we're going to share at the end. And the good news of Jesus spread on to, and it hit some of the rocky soil, and this is what happened. And, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. Who wouldn't receive the good news of joy, with joy? That Jesus loves you and died for your sin, pays your penalty in full with you doing nothing, and you can have salvation in him and in him alone. And that sounds good. I'll receive that. That sounds amazing. That's a, that's a good, really good message. Look what it continues to say, though. It says, but these have no root because it's on rocky soil. It's on a hard heart. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. James 1, 2 through 4, this is a positive one. It says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you face, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, it actually produces something. It produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it grow, let it flourish, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness in what? What's the theme? To abide in God, his commands, his laws, his statutes. So I want to show you in other areas of Scripture that Solomon is not saying something new. In verse 18, we see the why for God's testing on us. Look at it again one more time. Verse 18 of our text, it says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. God is testing them. Why? That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Remember Solomon, the preacher king, he's looking at everything under the sun. And he's going, man is no different. Man is no different than animal. See, God tests his people that they might see their wickedness and turn to him. You see, the test we often give one another, the test you and I do to one another, live, live up to my expectations kind of tests, are to prove to ourselves that we are the worship ones, that we should deserve worship. Just like that marriage idea, here's my expectations on you, honey. If you don't meet them, wrath. You should worship me. By meeting what I have for you. It's not how marriage works. It's not how life works. It's not what we're called to. But that's how we twist it, don't we? We set moral standards for other people to live by. But yet God is judging us and he set the moral standard. And if we live to him and we, we abide in him and we follow him and lean towards him, there's going to be great times of Fellowship with him and worship. So it's so different from the Lord. He tests that we might find him and receive his mercy, that he will become the object, object of worship, not us. See, our first section, our life, we have replaced justice and righteousness for wickedness. 
And God will judge and test us that we might see we are mere beasts. We are, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, that we are children of wrath. That we're children of wrath. So look at, look at our next section, our death, verses 19 and 20. It says this, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust, and to dust all return. So I'll go fairly quickly on this point, like really fast. Simply, what Solomon is saying, no matter rich, poor, strong, weak, wise, a fool, or an animal, our end is the grave. That's our end, right? It doesn't take supernatural wisdom to figure this out. It takes get your chin up and look around the world and, and people die at all different ages. Animals die at all different times. And 100% of us in this room are one day closer to death than we were yesterday at this time. One day closer. But why does Solomon connect mankind and animals here? Like That's the question that I, I'm trying to answer. And I personally don't know, but my guess is that without God, remember Solomon's looking under the sun, without God, we are living animalistic behavior. Who am I going to sleep with? Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? Repeat. 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 Over and over again. See, without God, we live with animalistic behavior. We seek what we want. We serve ourselves. We chase our desires as if the desires we chase were like a tail just out of our reach. We scratch, we claw, and bite those around us that don't meet our expectations, forever pointing the blame at another and ignoring the responsibility that we have been given by God. We ignore our personal responsibility. You have a choice at this point, friends. You can resign yourself to this type of behavior, live in the, as an animalistic behavior, or you can surrender your life, recognizing your wickedness under your justice, under your righteousness, and live for the Lord. And that is our next section, our destiny, verse 21 and 22. See, Solomon in this text asked two questions in these two verses. But essentially, it's just one question. It's just one question. What happens after death? Let's look at it. Verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? There's the first time he asked the question. Then he says, so I saw that there is nothing better than a man, that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And here's the second time he asked the same question. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? It's our destiny. What is going to happen after death? Solomon, in all of his supernatural wisdom, is looking at the world and going, wickedness, wickedness. God will judge. There will be testing. And we will enter the grave. Man, what's going on afterwards? See, we can't miss this fact that he has set this question, this Coelith, this preacher king, Solomon, has set this question up with all that we have talked about up until this point. We are wicked even when trying to be just. We are wicked even when trying to be righteous. We will be judged by God. We will be tested by God. We all will die, so what next? So how do we find life after death? This is the question of mankind since the beginning of time and for Solomon as well. And because we follow a God who created all things and sustains all things, we have an answer, don't we, church? We have an answer for this. You see, every single world religion sets up work. Like we have salvation. Salvation is to be freed, like a redemption. A salvation to, be, to, to live eternally with, with our creator. 
And that's what we, we own, and I'll explain that in a sec. But every single religion, test it, test it. Every single religion, you have to do something to gain salvation. It's a works-based religion. I have to pray this many times. I have to do these things. Reincarnation, I have to continue my karma. I have to do all these things to get nirvana. I have to do, 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 then I get. Over and over and over the work, am I good enough? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? The beauty of Christianity is you gain salvation through faith alone, by Jesus alone, by God alone. It's all him. He does the work. He pays our sin in full, dying for our penalty that we deserve, our wickedness, our missing of the mark. And God does all of it by sending his son to pay for the, for the cost that we deserve to pay. He grants us salvation, and then what do we do, Christian? We work. We work on the things that he has given us before time even existed to go and make disciples, to share our faith with others, to be the church, to love one another, to care for one another. Why? Because of this. Because of salvation. Because of what Jesus has done for us. It's not based on our works. It's based on Christ. Then we get to do. So different. It's completely opposite than every other religion. You know what though? Every religion that I've come across blamed, especially those that are fighting to not believe in God, blame Christianity to be this. But your Bible just says do, do, do. It's all a bunch of rules. Well, you need to read it. You need to understand. Let me help you understand and explain it. No, it's just a bunch of rules that you have to do. I don't know if I want to believe in that kind of a God. It tells me not to do this, not to do that, not to do that. The Bible is telling a message of salvation that is gifted for you. And simply, you receive it. See, you see, world, every worldview must answer these four questions. I'm going to close with this really quickly. You have to answer these four questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? What's gone wrong with the world? Can anything be done to rescue the world? And where is all this going? Every worldview must answer these four questions. Let me unpack them really quickly for the Christian worldview. In the Christian faith, number one, why is there something rather than nothing? In the Christian faith, this is answered for us in Genesis 1 and 2, the very two, first two chapters of the book. God spoke things into existence. He is eternal of all time, and he spoke things into existence. He spoke creation into existence. The problem is we have turned creation into our God, and we worship creation rather than the creator. And that's in Romans chapter 1. We see that right around here somewhere. We are evil. We distort the truth. This is what we do. And that's number two. So what's gone wrong with the world? Well, sin and wickedness. We've been talking about this. And we see this in, in others when we've got to start looking inward and seeing it in ourselves. Right? Like we sin, we, we, we try to be morally right, but you're, yet we're morally wrong. We try to be a generally good person in justice, but yet we're still evil. And that's number two. Number three is, can anything be done to rescue the world? Well, the Bible from Genesis 3, the very third chapter of the book, all the way through to the end is telling one amazing story. It's one amazing story about Jesus. 
pointing all things to him. He is the better sacrifice. He is the better king. He is the better prophet. He is the better priest. He is the better Abraham, the better Moses, better Joseph, better David. He is the one that all things point to. His life, his death, his resurrection. This story is about him. What he has done. Our salvation is gifted to us through him. Let me, see, let me show you some verses. It's not on the screen, but just hear him. John 14, 6, it says, I, Jesus, am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one goes to glory except by me, Jesus says. John three sixteen, a famous one, says, For God so loved the world, so God the Father loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. No works, belief. Acts 4.12, couldn't be any clearer. It says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or Romans 10.9 and 10 and verse 13 says, if you confess with your mouth, like out of the heart the mouth speaks, if you confess from your heart, out of your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead 2,000 years ago, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So where is all this going? Well, if you have a Bible, turn to the last book. It's actually the second last chapter of the Bible, chapter 21. It's on the screen, but I'd love for you to turn to it if you have your own Bibles and big highlight it, big circle it. This is what's coming. This is what is coming for us. And it says this, Then I saw, this is John, able to see the vision of what is to come. This is the whole book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature. Right? We're in Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature. This is, you've got to read this very differently. But this is very clear what it's saying. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is where we're living right now. And the first heaven and the first earth. And the sea was no more, and I, which represents destruction, wrath, judgment. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city... The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So beautiful, right? When you see the bride coming down the aisle, beautiful. And the Lord's coming down like a bride coming to be be consummated with with a groom, with a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We understand every one of those, don't we? The former things, mourning, crying. God is going to make it right. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. Okay, so what? When God says, write this down, and then we get it, oh my goodness, let's pay attention. So write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Okay, what are you, you going to say? And he said to me, it is done. I, Jesus, am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give, this is so sweet, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Remember the works? Salvation. I will give to you without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be, what? My son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, with which is the second death. So sweet. But aren't we in that last list? Aren't we in that last list? All liars? How many good things do I have to do to pay off the one lie that I, that I said? Can you see how karma will never work? You're going you're gonna to be a scorpion the rest of your life. You're going to keep bouncing down until you're in the animal kingdom. It's such an evil, it removes God from the picture completely. It's a world religion. See, God is saying, no, I will save you. Just give me the one thing that you own. Do you know what that is? The one thing that you own. Remember, we've read verses on this, that you innately are born into your sin. You own it. It's not a gift from the Lord. You own it. And that's all he's asking for. Give me your sin. Confess your sin and believe in me today. And you will be saved. The one thing Jesus came for is to pay for the thing that you owe him. And that's your sin penalty. And he wants to pay it in full. Man, Jesus loves us. Proverbs 8, 17. It's, let me read a whole bunch of verses here and then we'll close. I, I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. Deuteronomy 4, 29 says, you will seek the Lord your God and will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Luke eleven nine to 10 says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, these are passages that God wants you to know. He wants to save you. He's testing you. Will you trust in him today? Trust in him for your destiny. Because he wants not only to save you, he wants to transform you into a new creation. We've got all kinds of verses on this. This is my favorite, Ezekiel 36, 26. It says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh so that the seed of the gospel will bring roots and it will grow and flourish and be nurtured and that we will be a family encouraging one another, loving one another and being in community. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you so much uh, for your amazing grace. I thank you that your gospel is so sweet, so sweet that the world has it all wrong. They're trying to confuse, and the enemy is doing a really great job at it, trying to confuse and make Christianity just another world religion of works. But you say it's far from that. You are the one, Jesus, that have done the work. 
You, Jesus, came, you lived, you died, you rose again for, 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 our, for our namesake that we might glorify and worship you for our salvation, that we might worship you as our only and true God. And so I just pray for those that are in this room that, that maybe have not yet received you or maybe believe those lies that, you know what, I have to do better. It's about my works and my righteousness and, and then Jesus must not like me very much if, if I have to do more. And so just believing these lies from the enemy, would you free them, Lord? Would you open their hearts and their minds to the freedom that you bring, the, the reconciliation of you, Jesus, to the Father, that you are our true mediator. So I just pray uh, this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.